The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Brooke, Christian, Kent, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, Jackie, Annabelle, Dawn, and Megan. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell them what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to be airing a recording from our Summer Educators Institute mm. last year in 2021, where we had Elizabeth DeBrule, who works for the New Hampshire Historic Society, join us. Great. To teach us about New Hampshire women in the suffrage movement. Awesome. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we're going to be asking the question, who were the New Hampshire women in the suffrage movement? We are joined on this episode by Elizabeth DeBrule. And um, I'm so excited to share this information with everybody because Elizabeth de Brule did this research herself. It is original research. Okay. Um, she was spent the year leading up to the centennial of women's suffrage, digging through New Hampshire archives to try to find anything that she could find on the New Hampshire suffrage movement. It was really hard <laughs> to do original <laughs> research. You couldn't Google it. Right. Um, you had to go dig through archives and find um, pieces of information and in first-hand accounts. Yeah. Old school newspapers. Old school. So first of all, I'm just so impressed with her and so grateful that she did this research yeah. so that other people can know about the women. Um, the New Hampshire suffrage movement sort of reflected the national movement okay, at large. Cool. And um, and so I think it is a great way for uh, people to see, you know, people that didn't, you know, it's not the Susan B. Anthony's and these big names, but these battles that Anthony and Caddy Stanton and Ida B. Wells and all these women are fighting is happening at local levels all the time. And New Hampshire is a small state, but the, it, the patterns are the same. And I, I just think it's so powerful. Yeah. New Hampshire suffrage, to me, what sticks out when I think about her, her talk is it's a husband and wife duo. And I just think that is so cool. Um, so let's uh, turn it over to Elizabeth DeBrule from the New Hampshire Historic Society. Take it away, Elizabeth. Hi, everyone. It's great to see you all today. Um, I'm going to start with a disclaimer. I just got back from vacation. I'm like, oh, hey, Becky. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, I just got back from vacation late Sunday night. And I was telling Kelsey yesterday, I did like 10 loads of laundry and went to three different grocery stores and haven't even been to my office yet. So if my brain is still on the beach, forgive me. Um, I know. <laughs> Um, so, um, as Kelsey mentioned, I am the Director of Education and Public Programs at the New Hampshire Historical Society. Um, I am also the editor of the Society's magazine, Historical New Hampshire. Um, if you're not already a member of the Society, I really encourage you to join. Anyone can join. It's only 50 bucks a year. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to pitch you on all this, but, you know, there's all sorts of great member benefits, and we have programs and exhibitions and publications and all sorts of fun things going on. Um, we are also, the society has made a big commitment to supporting social studies education in the state of New Hampshire, um, mainly at the upper elementary level, because that's where traditionally state history has been taught. Um, it hasn't been taught for many years. It's We're finding that it's been really 
dropped from the elementary curriculum, and we're trying to restore that. So, and I'm happy to answer questions about that later, um, but that isn't what you are all here to, to talk to about to talk about with me today. Um, so you guys are all from New Hampshire, right? No, you guys aren't? Where are you guys from? New York City. New York City. Okay. So you'll get a pass, but everybody else, is everybody else from New Hampshire? Okay. So you guys must all know your suffrage history backwards and forwards in New Hampshire, right? You know everything about suffrage? Okay. That, that is kind of a, a fake question because to be honest, nobody knew about suffrage in New Hampshire until about a year ago. <laughs> um, it was a huge, unstudied topic. As the anniversary for the 19th Amendment approached, um, the New Hampshire Historical Society got together with a bunch of other organizations uh, in the state to talk about what could we do to, to commemorate this anniversary. Um, and so we met with um, NHPR, NHPTV, New Hampshire Humanities, um, a bunch of different groups, um, Historical Society of Cheshire County, a bunch of different groups, and we decided, well, what can we do? And we decided we put up a website um, under the, the tagline, uh, New Hampshire Women Vote 100, that was going to list all of the activities that we all had planned for the anniversary year, 2020, which unfortunately, none of those things happened. Um, so the society also had their own celebration in the works. Um, and we had decided we were going to do a number of things to commemorate the anniversary. Um, we were going to have an exhibition um, at our headquarters in Concord, which is in, right across the street from the state house. Um, and we took as our tagline, this was the this was the title for all of our celebration, No Longer Denied, New Hampshire Women Win the Vote. Um, so we were gonna have, do an exhibition. We had two lecture series planned, one about remarkable New Hampshire women and one about suffrage in New Hampshire specifically. Um, we partnered with uh, NHPTV on a special showing of The Vote, the PBS uh, documentary, The Vote, which I hope you all saw. If not, get a copy. It's really, really great. Um, and we worked on a special issue of our magazine. There's the cover, and I have a copy right there, about women's suffrage. Um, the ex exhibition, ironically, went up on March 10th, 2020. So nobody saw it. <laughs> um, it's still up. It's going to be up for about two more weeks. And we've just reopened our building in June. So there's a little window of time to see it. Um, but it's going to get taken down because we have another exhibition going in um, opening October 1 um, called New Hampshire Now. It's a photography project about the state of New Hampshire. But instead of the, um, instead of the exhibition, what we did was we produced a special issue of our newsletter and we turn the exhibition into a newsletter story. And I have copies of these that I'll hand out to you guys later um, that you can take home because it has some, some great information in there. But we also found that the exhibition really wasn't the best way to tell this story about New Hampshire women um, and what they did. So once we started diving in, I was working on the publication, my colleague Wes Bala was working on the exhibition, we made a startling discovery. There was nothing written about New Hampshire women and suffrage, literally nothing. There was no article, no book, nothing. So we were really starting from scratch. Um, and it was, and I, I'm gonna confess right here, my field is colonial America. Wes's field is um, 19th century art. So we were, both of us were a little bit out of our depth, but we said, well, it's state history. We're gonna dive in and see what we can learn. So it ended up being, um, a really, really great experience. Um, and I, I, in fact, I'm going to say this is probably one of the, the best things I've worked on at the society. I had so much fun doing it. Um, so what we found when we started looking into this, um, New Hampshire is not mentioned in general national histories of suffrage at all, but a lot actually happened here. Um, and a lot of some really important things for the national movement and some really important things for New Hampshire. Um, and this is it illustrated one of the points that we always make about studying New Hampshire history. New Hampshire is a wonderful, wonderful mirror of national history. Okay, we our history starts of Anglo. I mean, we have Abenaki history, but then we also have the Anglo settlement in 1623. We cover the whole span of American history, um, and we we really do sort of foreshadow or reflect a lot of the larger trends that happened in the country. 
Um, and so this is a great way to teach New Hampshire history, to bring New Hampshire history into your classrooms, is to make these connections about what's going on nationally and what's going on in New Hampshire. And sometimes I feel sorry for states like Idaho or Montana because their state history textbooks start in 1850. And we've already got 200 years of English settlement under our belt um, by the time 1850 rolls around, more than 200 years. So Russ and I started, unsurprisingly, um, with the society's own collections. We have a massive collection. We have 33,000 museum objects, we have 2 million pages of manuscripts, 250,000 photographs, um, just tons of stuff. And we found we, almost, we had almost nothing in our collections. And although we weren't going public with this, I'll tell you privately, we think the reason for that is that the director at, in the early part of the 20th century was a man named Otis Hammond, very well regarded. He did amazing things for the society. He and his wife were virulent anti-suffragists. And so they didn't collect anything from the suffrage movement. One of the few things we had was this photograph, which we just acquired in 2017. Um, and when we started talking to other organizations and collecting organizations around the state, we realized nobody else had anything about suffrage either. Um, in fact, this photograph got used a lot um, by different groups last year, or they were planning to use it before the pandemic shut everything down because it was one of the few photographs we had. And I have to warn you, we're not even sure this is a suffrage photograph. <laughs> <laughs> um, it didn't come with much caption information. So one of the things we did is we dove into looking at this photograph. Those people are, they are standing on the steps of the New Hampshire Historical Society. We think they were at the state house and walked over the Historical Society and posed and for a picture in front of the, the Historical Society. We did, we're not even sure of the date. We did all sorts of research into the length of their dresses. We did zooms on their buttons to see if we could read what their buttons say. So we were pretty sure these are suffragists in 1915, but we're not positive. So that was one of the challenge. So for us, the real issue was you have to start with just piecing together the story. As a couple of historians, we, we looked at what do we want to do with this? And like I said, the first thing is we just had to put together a narrative, a timeline of New Hampshire suffrage movement and the people who, who made a difference. Um, who were the players? What were the important moments? What is the story of New Hampshire suffrage? And then we were hoping we were also going to have a chance to make some deeper connections about how New Hampshire suffrage related to the national movement. Um, and we used as our, our sort of base questions, and these are two perfect questions that you can use anytime you want to study something about New Hampshire history or any sort of smaller history um, and related to bigger things. So how was New Hampshire's experience in the suffrage movement typical for what was going on in other states? And how is it unique? How is it different? There's never one answer to that. It's always a mixture. It's always, in some ways it's typical, in some ways it's unique. We, from there, we dug in. We started looking at everything we could find. So we did start with um, general histories of the women's suffrage movement. And like I said, New Hampshire's almost never mentioned. There's only a couple of times that um, it appears in the general histories, but of course we made note of that. We spent a long time um, reading the six volume history of women's suffrage by um, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. That what was fun about that was um, one of the one of their partners, one of Stanton and um, and Anthony's partners was a man named Parker Pillsbury. I don't know if people know who Parker Pillsbury was. He was from New Hampshire. He was a very influential editor. Um, and social reformer in the 19th century with, um, with a substantial national reputation. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we pulled our copies, our six volumes of this, um, this series off the shelf and opened the first one, we saw that inside it had been donated to the society by Parker Pillsbury and he'd signed it with, a, with an attribution um, about how this should inform future generations. So it was it was really neat to get to to get to see that connection. Um, we looked at the Women's Journal, which was the newspaper that um, the, the suffragist newspaper came out, I think, once a week. 
for almost the entire, from 1870 until 1920. Um, and they had, they would publish all sorts of little reports from around the states, you know, states would submit their little updates. Here's what's going on in our state. So we've looked at that. There were a couple of organizational histories that we looked at, things like uh, the League of Women Voters in New Hampshire. They had published a little pamphlet and it had a little bit about suffrage in it. Uh, the Temperance Organization, a few, few organizations like that. We looked at personal papers. We were fortunate that the main suffragist in New Hampshire was a woman named Armenia White. And in 2014, her papers had been donated to the society. So we looked at her correspondence. She talked to, she wrote and corresponded with all the big names. And then we also looked at New Hampshire newspapers, which if you've ever done any sort of new newspaper research, you know, is a very tedious job. With all that, we managed to piece together a narrative. And we think that it's the only narrative, as far as we know, of suffrage in New Hampshire to date. We will also say, though, we have just scratched the surface. So if there are any budding uh, graduate students out there, this is a great topic. This is a great topic with lots more to do and to look at. Um, so one of the things I included or that I put copies for you guys is the preface from the magazine. Um, it's two short pages, but it kind of gives you an overview about um, what we found and what New Hampshire's contributions were. So I'll hand that out afterwards as well. So what we found, um, we found a lot of places where the two, where New Hampshire history and national history connected, where they really intersected um, and New Hampshire made a difference. And I'm going to go into some stories here in just a minute. Um, but we on the left, you'll see I've listed a bunch of sort of big moments in the national suffrage story. Um, and then on the right, I've listed New Hampshire women who played a big role in those, those big turning points, those big movements. And the way we decided to structure this was um, by biographies. So we looked at a number of New Hampshire women um, and picked the ones that we thought lined up the best as sort of a jumping off point to talk about the history and then dove into their histories a little bit. When we started this project, Wes and I both thought, oh my gosh, what in the world are we going to say? We have nothing to say. And by the time we finished, we were horrified that we had to leave some women out because we found so much material. Um, so I'm going to, from here, I'm just going to kind of talk about some of the women kind of piece together the story for you um, and um, tell you about who some of these women were and what they did. Um, so, and I mean this to be kind of casual. So if you guys have questions or anything, feel free to stop me and raise your hand or whatever, shout it out. And I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, bearing in mind that I'm not a women's historian, so don't hold me to account. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start our story um, with Armenia White. Has anybody heard of Armenia White before? No. So she and her husband, Nathaniel White, um, if you are ever in the Concord area, you might've heard of them. White Park is named after them. White Opera House. Um, the congregation or the Unitarian Church in Concord was once named the White Unitarian Church. Um, they were very wealthy. Um, Nathaniel, her husband, uh, he was a stagecoach driver and through a bunch of alliances with other stagecoach drivers in New Hampshire, they ended up founding a company that became American Express after they sold it. But I mean, they, they owned it for a long time. They made a lot of money off it. They sold it for a lot of money and eventually became American Express, which didn't used to be a credit card. It was actually an express service that got messages and packages and mail places. Um, so they made a lot of money. They in Concord, they lived in Concord in the middle of the 19th century. Armenia White was the big suffragist figure in New Hampshire history, and she dominated the New Hampshire movement for the entire second half of the 19th century. After the Civil War, they were always involved in reform causes. They were abolitionists before the war. Um, they were interested in temperance before the war. Um, after the war, um, and I think Susan Ware already covered a lot of this yesterday about how the movement split um, in the, the, the years after the Civil War were very tumultuous. There was a lot of contention. Should we push for African-American voting rights for men? Should we push for suffrage for both men and women of both races? What should we do? The movement split. 
Um, Nathaniel and Armenia were in Boston at a meeting um, that was the founding of the New England Women's Suffrage Association. And they had people like Lucy Stone, who becomes a huge name in the women's suffrage movement in the 19th century. Um, and they decide, we're going to start state organizations. We're going to organize this from the ground up. And the whites say, we're going to take care of New Hampshire. We'll found the New Hampshire organization. So they come back. This is in December of 1868. And they put out a call um, and to, to hold a meeting in Concord in December. And hundreds of people show up and they form the first, one of the first state suffrage organizations in the country. And they are very active in it. The whites are really an example of the power of personality. Both of them were very dynamic. They had a huge house that was right across the street from the state house. Um, if you ever go into Concord and you know where the state annex is, right across from the state house, that's where their house used to be. They tore down their house to build the state annex in the late 1930s. Um, they knew everyone. They were extremely well connected. And through a lot of this sort of political schmoozing, having people over for dinner, calling in favors, they managed to get suffrage on the legislative agenda. So in 1870, they make a bid, the whites and their organization, they make a bid to change the New Hampshire state constitution to remove the word male from the voting restrictions. It's one of this whole effort to change state constitutions is, is a big one that nationally, and this is one of the earliest efforts for it. It looks like it's going really well. They start holding public meetings. They bring in speakers from the national movement, um, like Lucy Stone uh, and Mary Livermore, some of the other big figures. They, uh, they have a huge turnout of people who are interested in this. This goes to a committee of the House. There's a bill that's proposed. It gets sent to a committee. The committee listens to the, all this testimony. They love it. Everything's going great. And then in a big shocking twist, it comes out of the committee and the committee votes inexpedient to legislate. So the effort dies and it's a huge loss. Um, they're very upset and they don't try and change the constitution, the state constitution for another 30 years after that um, in any serious way. So the whites regroup, and this is sort of the story of, of women nationally. They're constantly trying something, they get close, it goes against them, they regroup. They get back together and say, okay, we're either gonna try this again or we're gonna figure out a different approach and go at this a different way. And they're constantly doing this over and over again. Um, so the whites regroup, um, they start building alliances. So they both get very involved in the temperance movement, which had always been kind of one of their reform movements, but they decide this is a natural alliance. Okay, temperance, um, temperance is this movement to control the sale of alcohol. And it's very, very popular at the end of the 19th century, um, mainly because women get involved. Um, women see it as, or society sees it as, women are the ones who are bearing the cost of men getting drunk, okay? Because their, their husbands are drinking away their salaries, so their families are living in poverty. Their husbands are more likely to, um, to beat them or treat them badly physically. Um, so this temperance becomes this big women's movement and this big effort that women get involved in. Actually, more women were involved in temperance at the end of the 19th century than in suffrage. Um, so Armenia founds um, the New Hampshire women's temperance movement uh, in the mid-1870s. And Nathaniel gets involved as well. They start building alliances. They reach out to um, women's clubs, which are just starting to form in a few New Hampshire towns which are groups of women who they are intellectually bright. They want to do more with themselves than be housewives. And they want to develop their sort of cultural and intellectual potential. So they start forming women's clubs um, at this time period. So, and she's bringing in speakers. She's having all these conversations via letter with um, Susan B. Anthony is her main correspondent, but they're bringing in speakers to New Hampshire um, to, to raise public awareness about suffrage as an issue. Most people in New Hampshire, to be honest, didn't really care. Okay, there wasn't strong opposition because a lot of people didn't really think it was a viable possibility. They're like, whatever, we don't think it's going to happen. So there's no sense getting upset about it. Um, very, very quietly in 1878, um, they push a bill through the legislature that grants women 
school suffrage, which means women can vote in the state of New Hampshire on issues relating to the schools. So they can vote, they can serve on a school board, they can vote for the school board, they can vote for the school budget. What's interesting about that is that when you read national history, it was a source of frustration to us that we would find these great things happening in New Hampshire and there's nothing about it in the, at the national level. It's really been forgotten. Um, but this was a big deal. New Hampshire was the first Eastern state to adopt school suffrage. And it was considered a, a logical extension of women's role, right? Who's gonna, who has more right to say what their children should be doing than women? Um, so this, there was a sort of extension of this motherhood idea. So it becomes a really big deal. Um, and I'm going to read you a quote here from the, the Boston Globe covered the first election in which women could vote. And by tradition, we don't know this for sure, but by tradition in Concord, Armenia was the first woman to cast her ballot once this law had been passed. Um, okay, so the Boston Globe is reporting on this on this momentous day when women are voting in very condescending terms. Um, <clears throat> So people are, are in a room casting a ballot, you know, dropping their vote into the ballot box. And the Globe says the crowding, squeezing and pushing were severe enough for the taste of the masculine voter and were harsh enough to make it extremely unpleasant for the dear creatures who were undergoing so much to cast their maiden vote. To add to the delay, the Honorable Nathaniel White had planted his somewhat corpulent form directly in front of the ballot box and stayed the surging tide to shake hands with every woman who voted. So this is a big moment. And they think this is, they, Armenia White and her allies, they think this is it. New Hampshire is going to be the leader. We're gonna, we're gonna break through now. And so they, they make this big effort to get municipal suffrage, right? So that women can vote in town elections and town affairs. They start gearing up for that in like the early 1880s. And in 1881, Nathaniel dies very suddenly. Um, he, he has congestive heart failure. We think it's congestive heart failure. He dies and Armenia kind of falls apart. They're, they've got adult children who are all going through a number of issues, some financial, some emotional. Um, so she's trying to deal with this. She's devastated at the loss of her husband um, because they were very, very close. And the movement kind of peters out in the 1880s. Um, she just can't quite hold it together. So it's a sad story. Um, and it isn't just down to her, but the other people, they, they can't get the momentum going for municipal suffrage. And they get it in front of the legislature and the legislature does what it always does. And it stalls and it stalls. And then eventually it just sort of dies away. So New Hampshire's at the forefront for this moment. And then it kind of falls back and other states move forward. By the 1890s, she's she's pretty elderly at this point. She's kind of lost her her momentum on this. Um, and in fact, one of the things that we found, which was really neat, was the generational aspect of this movement. None of the women who started the bid for women's suffrage in the 1850s and 1860s lived to see the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Um, sometimes their daughters took up the, the standard for them. One case was Lucy Stone, who was a good friend of Armenia White's. Her daughter, Alice Stone Blackwell, becomes a national leader. And at one point, she writes, she writes a letter to Armenia, um, which is really very charming. But she says, to, she's trying to get Armenia, this is in the 18, uh, 1889, she's trying to get Armenia to organize a meeting. And she says, uh, I, think it, I think it is very desirable to have the New Hampshire WSA stirred up a little, at least enough to hold a meeting. She ends her letter to Armenia by saying, my mother thinks it would be a good plan. And one of the pictures we found in here, this is very richly illustrated, was a wonderful picture of Lucy Stone holding a baby. And that baby is Alice Stone Blackwell. So Armenia sort of steps aside by the 1890s. And she turns over, the movement kind of languishes. And then right after the turn of the century, the movement um, reforms itself and starts up again. Armenia becomes um, what they call a revered a pioneer. And she's off, she comes out for various events and gives an inspirational speech and becomes the sort of source of um, pride for, for the movement. While that's going on, there's actually something else happening in New Hampshire suffrage. 
So if you know anything about New Hampshire suffrage, the one suffragist you probably know in New Hampshire, does anybody know who? No, Marilla Ricker. Has anybody ever heard of Marilla Ricker? She was a lawyer. She was, she was one of the first lawyers in the country. So Marilla Ricker wasn't, she also lived in the late 19th century um, in New Hampshire. She was from Dover. Um, she wasn't really involved in the state movement very much, but she did a couple of interesting things. Um, one is, as Kelsey pointed out, she was an attorney. She was one of the first lawyers in the country. And she trained in Washington, D.C. with Belva A. Lockwood, who, who was the first lawyer, in a, a woman lawyer in America. And she was, Marilla Ricker was one of the first people to be recognized to try cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, she was, so she was very involved in sort of breaking professional barriers for women. Um, at one point, she was, she was very well connected politically. Um, and at one point she was being considered for an ambassadorship and she would have been, if she'd gotten it, she would have been the first woman ambassador in American history. Unfortunately, she didn't get it. They decided to appoint a man instead. Um, but um, Marilla Ricker, so in addition to these professional boundaries, she also took a different approach to suffrage in New Hampshire. In 1870, she showed up at Dover um, for the town meeting at the polls and said, I am a taxpayer and I am going to vote. And there was a big kerfuffle and all the, the you know, supervisors of the checklist are having a fit and never, nobody knows what to do. They end up letting her vote, but not counting her ballot. And every year after that, she shows up at those polls and again and again and again and votes and they never count it. But she, that's her argument. I am a taxpayer and I should be allowed to vote. So other women in America were starting to adopt the same tactic, but she was one of the first. She might have been the first, but we're not sure. She, it was very close. So that's what she pushes ahead on. And in 1910, she actually runs for governor of New Hampshire. She was the first woman to run for governor, even though she could not vote. Um, so she runs for governor. It, it her campaign doesn't get too far. She's very well connected with Republicans in the state and other Republicans come to her and convince her to withdraw her candidacy eventually. Um, but she is considered, you know, really a pioneer. Her, this is her portrait that now hangs in the New Hampshire State House. In the 1990s, the New Hampshire legislature decided they voted to allow her portrait to be, um, to be put up in the New Hampshire State House. There's very few women portraits in the, state, in the New Hampshire State House. Um, so they voted to let her portrait be put up, but they didn't put any money to it because, you know, this is New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> so it didn't do it didn't go anywhere. In 2013, they passed um, another law, another bill that said, OK, we'll let her we'll let her um, her portrait be up. They still didn't put any money to it. But by this point, the Women's Bar Association and the League of Women Voters of New Hampshire had stepped forward and said, we're going to take care of the fundraising we'll raise the money and get this up. So that's what happened. They, those two groups um, organized the money and managed to put her, her portrait up. Um, when Jean Shaheen was elected in 1997, the first governor, woman governor of New Hampshire, she remembered Marilla Ricker in her inauguration speech. Um, and she said, just briefly, um, she said her story is a reminder that change doesn't come by waiting, it comes from acting. So it's nice to know that this figure, at least, um, is remembered um, in New Hampshire. The Remedial Herstory Project is hosting its second annual Summer Educators Retreat to help teachers integrate more women's history and literature into their curriculum. Studies show that educators currently teach women's history between 5 and 20% of the time, with 5% being the plurality. Our retreat will feature speakers from around the world and be available online and in person and provide educators with dozens of packaged lesson plans, videos, and other tools and resources to get women into every unit of their curriculum. The best part is that in-person attendees will get to network and relax with peers who are passionate about working to incorporate the diverse history of half the population all but left out of the history classroom. The retreat will take place at New Hampshire's Common Man Inn and Spa at the heart of the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the best place to be in August. The retreat will take place between August 8th and 10th. Interested people can learn more on our website at www.remedialherstory.com slash summer-educators-retreat. Moving ahead, 
So I mentioned the movement's kind of languishing, right? End of the 19th century. Nobody's really doing anything. Nothing's happening. The national movement is also languishing. Um, these are called, the later women's suffragists will call these years the doldrums because nothing's happening nationally. And in part, the reason that it's languishing is because of that generational aspect. The women who started this in the 1860s are getting old and they're losing their energy. They're not quite ready to hand it over, but they can't really do anything. So by the end of the 19th century, by the 18, you know, 1898, 1899, they're finally convinced, okay, we have to turn this over to the next generation. So they do that nationally. Um, and nationally, the, the movement comes under the leadership of um, Carrie, Carrie Chapman Catt, who, and they unite the two, the two splintered groups are united into one organization and, and Carrie Chapman Catt leads it. And she decides when she takes over, I think in 1900, I don't remember the exact year she took over, but one of her first things is she decides we're going to go back to the states and we're going to revitalize these state organizations. So she sends this young woman named Mary Chase, who was from New Hampshire anyways, but she was she was very she was starting to get active in the national movement. And she appoints Mary Chase to um, start to revitalize the New Hampshire state movement and to also kind of take care of Vermont at the same time, because even less was happening in Vermont than was happening here at that time. So Mary Chase gets involved and right away, within a year, she gets the state organization refounded. She gets tons of new members to come in and they say, we're going to make a bid to change the state constitution. We're going to go back. There's a state constitutional convention in 1902. We're going to get them to change it, to change, make, take that word male out. Now, taking that word male out wouldn't actually give women the vote in New Hampshire. It would clear the way for them to get the vote in New Hampshire. So again, they follow sort of the similar path. They bring in national speakers. In fact, Carrie Catman Chat um, moves uh, the national headquarters for the national movement to Concord. Um, they set up an office there and it's funded by Armenia White. She puts up the money for them to, um, to have this office. The national organization is run out of Concord, New Hampshire. Um, they think this is it. New Hampshire is going to break this deadlock for the country and they're going to change their state constitution. And that is going to finally get some movement happening in the East because the East has just kind of locked down lots of lots of public support. They think for this for this effort, it goes to the state constitutional convention. The first question is they have to this, the state constitutional convention has to decide, are we going to put it to the voters? Right? Because the way this works in New Hampshire is. The Constitutional Convention decides what goes to the voters, and then the voters actually decide whether the Constitution is going to be changed. So they start off with, um, it's one of many issues being covered. They are running late. It's scheduled for an afternoon, um, and they're running late. And so they limit discussion to an hour. And each speaker can only speak for five minutes. So people start speaking, and most of the speakers are in favor of this. There are two gentlemen who aren't. One is a uh, federal judge called, um, oh, what's his name? Edward Aldrich. Um, the other is, um, is a representative from Londonderry named Rosecrans Pillsbury. They're both sort of bigwigs in New Hampshire. These two take on all comers. Everybody who speaks, one of them responds and like kind of shoots them down. And after an hour, there's still too many people who want to speak. So Aldrich actually proposes, he says, let's expand the discussion. Let's, let's go longer. So the, the convention agrees. They're still hammering away at this as each speaker says, women should vote, women should vote. The question really becomes, do women want the vote? They're not sure. They're really not sure if women want the vote in New Hampshire. Um, finally, a speaker gets up and he says, look, we can't even decide. We should let the voters weigh in on this because this body, we, we can't come to a conclusion. So they actually pass it. Um, and it goes to, it's going to go to the voters. The thing was, the convention was very poorly attended that afternoon. And the next day, there is an effort to reconsider that vote. And it's very hotly contested. And the, the effort to reconsider the vote narrowly fails. So the, so it goes to the voters as question seven um, in 1903, March 1903. That sets off an even bigger storm, right? Now, all of a sudden, the whole country is looking at New Hampshire. 
Um, there starts to appear articles in places like Colorado and Louisiana, state old New Hampshire might be leading the charge. That's what they keep calling New Hampshire. Um, and again, the national leaders pour in. There's no organized anti-suffrage movement in New Hampshire. So the people who are worried about it, they called New York and Massachusetts and said, send some of your people here. So the anti-suffrage movements in those two states start pouring people into New Hampshire and arguing back and forth and back and forth. The effort goes to the voters and it fails. Um, and so it's a big blow. They thought they had it. Um, and they're, they're very upset and disappointed that, that it didn't come through. They try again, though. Ten years later, there's another state constitutional convention in 1912. They make a big bid for it. Um, oh, I forgot to mention Mary Emma Quimby. She's she's on the other side here. She was the secretary for the state um, suffrage organization. She published something called Opinions of New Hampshire Men and Women, which gathered um, quotes from all the sort of the leading lights in New Hampshire, senators, authors, uh, community leaders, um, all in support of suffrage. Um, so she she plays a big part. She writes a letter. She handwrites a letter to every legislator. Um, in the state legislature, which, as you know, is 424 people. That's a lot of letters. Um, she knocks on doors. She follows up her letters by going and visiting each of these legislators. In the end, she they win this legislative battle, but they lose the vote. That is the furthest that the effort in New Hampshire ever gets on changing the state constitutional convention. So in 1912, though, they try again. They think, once again, we're going to do this. These, as you know, are really rough years in the national movement. Not much is happening. And like I said, the East Coast is just locked down. Nothing's changing in the East. Um, and women are getting very discouraged. So they launched the effort again in 1912. It goes to the Constitutional Convention. And um, by now, though, right before the Constitutional Convention, like three months before, an anti-suffrage movement gets organized in New Hampshire, in Concord. Um, this is one of the leaders. She's actually from Exeter. Her name is Frances Perry Dudley. She and her husband were virulently against suffrage. Um, they, held, they started holding rallies. So the suffragists are holding rallies. The anti-suffragists are holding rallies. Um, women are being pulled in both directions. There's also a men's organization, a men's organization to support suffrage that forms. Um, they hand out, we found this in our in our collections, um, our ephemera collection, a little card. You can't see it, but it's actually filled out. Um, you would fill this out at the rally um, with your name and your address. And then, I mean, it's we would recognize this today, right? You fill out your information and then they're going to follow up with you and try and get you involved um, in the effort. The suffragists use this, this type of thing as well. They have lots of public meetings. They have dueling public um, sessions at the state legislature. They open the state legislature for these public meetings. One night is for suffrage. The next night is for anti-suffrage. They're arguing back and forth. It becomes pretty nasty. Um, in the end, though, in 1912, the state constitutional convention does not pass the amendment to the voters. It doesn't get that far. And again, it's a disappointment. But part of the reason we found out was because of this man, Benjamin Kimball. And we luckily found a suitably dark and sinister portrait of him. Um, <laughs> this is also in our collection. Has anybody ever heard of ben Benjamin Kimball? Okay, he was, he was the man in late 19th century New Hampshire. He ran the railroads in the state, the uh, Boston, Maine, and the Concord and Montreal. He is responsible for organizing the construction of the state library. He talked the state into expanding the state house and building that whole back wing of the state house. We were a little conflicted because he was also responsible for raising all the money to build our building for the New Hampshire Historical Society in 1911. Um, he, was, he was the indispensable man. He didn't hold public office himself very often, but everybody knew him. He had tons of money. He was connected to everyone. Nothing happened in New Hampshire that didn't go through Benjamin Kimball. In 1915, it comes out that the railroads get audited because they're losing money. So the New Hampshire Public Services Commission audits them. And they find out that in 1912, there's all these mysterious payments made for alcohol and food to state legislators. 
Um, there's also evidence that uh, there's payments made to a couple of, of individuals who it turns out are um, kind, of, kind of lobbyists, like an early version of a lobbyist. Um, and there's evidence that there's some sort of collusion between the Boston Main Railroad and Benjamin Kimball and the New Hampshire Liquor Dealers Association and the Amoskeg Mills. It was this trifecta of the three biggest industries in the state. Um, and it turns out those three, those three industries got together and decided they needed to defeat women's suffrage in the state constitutional convention of 1912. Um, it was one of many progressive measures that was voted on that year. And they all three voted, they voted against all the progressive measures. They got their, they got the legislator to vote against all of the progressive measures. And the reason they were against suffrage was because the Liquor Dealers Association didn't want suffrage to pass because they were convinced that women would pass laws that would then make it very difficult to sell alcohol, okay? The Amoskeg Mills didn't want women to have the vote because they were afraid that women would enact labor reforms to um, get children out of the factories and to make safer working conditions um, and shorter work days, all of which would cut into their profits. Nobody could figure out why the Boston Maine was against women's suffrage, but they finally pieced it together. Apparently there was a, a bid for a rival railroad to open in New Hampshire and they basically, it was part of this constitutional convention. There was this rival railroad was going to get an inroad into New Hampshire. So basically the Boston and Maine said to these other two groups, you support us on knocking down that railroad and we'll support you on suffrage. The quid pro quo. Um, so this makes national news. Okay, this is what suffragists have always believed nationally, that there are bi there's big money working behind the scenes to undermine suffrage. So this makes national news. Um, it, it sort of mirrors what's happening in some other states. In Pennsylvania, the Liquor um, Dealers Association actually manages to shoot down suffrage. Um, the Southern Pacific Railroad also works against suffrage in Mexico and uh, New Mexico and Arizona. They were unsuccessful in stopping it, but there's big money behind the anti-suffrage movement. Um, so Kimball is sort of at the heart of this. Ironically. He was a delegate at the 1902 convention and he voted for suffrage to go to the voters. But in 1912, he wasn't a delegate anymore. It was all about business and money. So he works, he works against it. The years after that are, are tough ones, right? They're tough for the national movement too, right? We know there's all sorts of setbacks in these years. New York's not passing state suffrage. If you see the vote, that PBS documentary, this is they really cover this episode well. It's pretty remarkable. The night before Woodrow Wilson is inaugurated in March 1913, um, Alice Paul uh, organizes for the suffrage movement this massive parade in Washington, D.C. In, in honor of suffrage. It's really big news. Um, and the whole thing is like this splendid pageantry. They, um, they have floats they, of showing women's contribution through history. They have, um, they stop it in front of various um, federal office buildings and stage tableau of women in costumes, you know, acting out various like prominent moments in women's history. Um, they have hundreds of women marching by profession. Um, and then they also have all the state delegations there. And at the very end, they have cars carrying what's called the pioneers. Um, we think Armenia White was there. We're not sure. She was one of the last surviving women of that generation. So there were only a few left um, riding in these cars. So about 300,000 people turn out for this parade. Okay. The beginning is, goes well. It's led by this woman named um, Inez McCollin. She's, she was renowned for her beauty. She was riding a white horse. She had like a toga-like flowing robe on. She's leading this charge through Washington, D.C. The beginning is all going great. Somewhere around the middle of the parade, the crowd gets rowdy. They're not, um, they weren't sober, first of all. There were a lot of men who were very hostile to suffrage, and some women, um, and the crowd really, it, it get, turns into basically a riot. Um, so they're all pushing and shoving. You can see this is this picture here is the beginning of the parade. 
you can see how many people are lined up, um, but they still have a nice wide path to pass through. By the time the state delegations get up there, their women are marching single file. That's all they can get through the crowd is single file. The other shocking thing about this was there were a lot of police there that day. They sided with the rioters. They were anti-suffrage. And they basically thought women were getting what they deserved. Um, 100 people end up in the hospital after this, this thing happens. It is, again, shocking, shocking national news. And even some anti-suffragists are horrified by this because these are middle-class women marching, some of them marching with their daughters. Um, and this woman over here on the left, Agnes Jenks, she was also from Concord. She had taken her daughter and some of her daughter's friends um, and she ends up testifying in front of Congress. Congress immediately convenes a special investigative committee um, and they end up testifying about the treatment they received. Women were beaten by the crowd. They were pulled off the floats. Um, their clothing was ripped. Some of them ended up with broken bones. Um, and this was, was really a turning point for the national movement that, holy cow, this is wrong. I mean, suffrage, it really, it, it engendered a lot of sympathy. And suffragists later said, the national leaders later said, this movement did more, this riot did more for the suffrage cause than anything that had happened in the previous 60 years, because more people started becoming sympathetic to suffrage when they saw the sort of treatment these women were undergoing. So Agnes Jenks um, testified in front of Congress, talked about how they, um, the people in, in the state delegation in New Hampshire, they put all the, the girls, they tried to, the older women tried to put the younger girls in the middle and circle around them to give them some protection. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable stuff. But in New Hampshire, the movement's kind of puttering along. They, they're holding teas. They're having car rallies. They put a map up in the state house. Um, two state legislators from Lisbon make a claim. You know, they're, they're always, the suffragists are always floating these bills in the legislature for women's suffrage, and they never go anywhere. But two legislators from Lisbon make the statement that the women in their town don't want suffrage. So the New Hampshire suffrage movement says, well, let's find out. So they go to Lisbon and they conduct a survey and they find that 90% of the women in Lisbon want the vote. So those guys were wrong. So then they started a, uh, sorry, a statewide survey and they find that all over the state, the women of New Hampshire finally want the vote. They may have been unsure about it 20 years earlier, but by 1915, they want the vote. Um, they have to get interpreters in Manchester and Nashua because so many of the women there don't speak English. The immigrant population is so high. Um, German is actually the most common language, but French, Canadian, and French is, is the other one. Yeah, Manchester is a sanctuary city. So there's a lot of um, African refugees um, from like Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, a lot, there's a big Nepalese community as well. But even then, it was mainly Irish, French, Canadians, Italians, and Germans. Um, before World War I, German was the largest immigrant population in the country. And German was the second most popular language in the United States before World War I. As the movement goes along, they, they, on the national level, they decide we're going to push for a federal amendment. They'd kind of been futzing around with this. They'd never really made a lot of headway. Um, back in the 1880s, New Hampshire Senator um, actually was the Henry Blair was the one who, who the, for the very first time, proposed um, a federal amendment that women should have the right to vote, um, but it never went anywhere. But now the national movement says, we're going we're gonna to get this through Congress and we're going to send this amendment to the states. They make this big push in 1917. It passes the House. It goes to the Senate and the Senate votes it down by just a couple of votes. They need two thirds and they just, they have a majority, but they don't have the, um, the two thirds. So they, the national movement targets four states that have senators up for re-election and says, these are the, the Senate seats we have to win. Massachusetts, Delaware, New Jersey, and New Hampshire. New Hampshire actually had two Senate seats up for election in 1918 because one of our senators died in office. Um, one Senate seat was pretty reliably going to uh, somebody who supported suffrage. But the other one was um, hotly contested. So the other New Hampshire seat um, is very hotly contested, and the, the Republican candidate is a guy named George Moses. He was the uber conservative 
of New Hampshire politics in the early part of the 20th century. He and he became a very powerful figure in the Senate. So the New Hampshire League of Women or the Hampshire Women's Suffrage Movement um, makes a big effort to get to prevent Hoare from being elected. They fail. Hoare is elected, but it was a very narrow vote when before he had a runaway, he was going to be a runaway candidate. Now they really narrowed the vote, but he he does get elected. Um, the House, the state house considers passing a resolution that directs him that he must vote for suffrage if it comes up in the Senate. And a lot of people say it, it, that resolution didn't pass, but a lot of people wonder, um, wondered at the time if he would actually have listened, would have felt bound by that amendment or not, because he was so dead set against it. Luckily, the Senate picked up a couple of surprise suffrage seats in other states. And when um, it was looking much more favorable for, um, for, for suffrage when it went to, the, to Congress. But they needed Congress to get back in session. Um, so in 19, early 1919, um, Congress wasn't in session. They, they, the suffragists wanted Woodrow Wilson to call a special session of Congress. He was in Europe. Um, working with the League of uh, the founding of the League of Nations at the Versailles uh, talks ending World War One, he comes back in February, end of February of 1919, and he lands in Boston. And a group of suffragists go down to Boston to try and convince him to call convene a special session of Congress about suffrage. Um, among them was a New Hampshire woman named um, Lois Warren Shaw. The women show up at where Wilson's going to give like a little, you know, speech. A couple of dignitaries are there and stuff like that. And he's on a platform. They show up without a permit. They line up in front of the platform. They've got signs. They're not disruptive. They get arrested. They get arrested because there's a law in Boston and Massachusetts at that point that you can't stand for more than seven minutes in one place without a permit. Okay, crazy. Obviously, nobody ever enforced that law. But they do here. They arrest these 20 women or something and they take them to the Charles Street Jail, which if you go into Boston now, you know, now it's a really hoity-toity um, hotel and restaurant, the Charles Street Jail. But then it was it was pretty bad news. Um, and this picture, which is one of the great finds um, that my my illustrations editor, Joan Damaris, found um, of Lois Shaw and the other women. They are at the Charles Street Jail. You can see on the edge there, there's bars there. And they're holding up this sign. Um, so they're about to be um, processed into the Charles Street Jail. And they stopped and they got this picture taken. So the women refused to pay the fine. It's a, it's a trivial fine. They refused to pay it. And they all decide they're going to go to jail. And they're thinking about holding a hunger strike in jail. Again, this is mirroring what's going on nationally. You know, Alice Paul and the hunger strikes that, that they were doing in Washington, D.C. Lois Shaw is the mother of five kids. Her husband, he sends her a telegram, which I guess she got in jail, um, that says, don't be quitters. I have competent nurses to look after the children. Um, <laughs> so the women don't stay in jail for very long. They only are there for a, a night or two. And then um, their families or supporters, just they just pay the fine. They say, we don't want you guys to go through this. They pay the fine and the women are released. Wilson does call the special session. A few, a few weeks later, I don't know if this was it or if this is what convinced her or not, but he does call the special session. It goes to the House and it passes. It goes to the Senate and it passes. So it's finally been approved. And now it has to go to the voters. All over the, there's, a, there's a whole strategy for the national movement to get this passed, which probably, I don't know if Susan Ware talked about any of that or not. The, the, the national women's suffrage leaders wanted this to go really quickly. They wanted the states to ratify really fast because they had really good state organizations that were up and running. And they knew that if they basically pushed it at all states at the same time, the anti-suffragists who were not as well organized were not going to be able to counter the movement because they were going to have to jump from state to state. They didn't have statewide organizations. So they started pushing um, ratification. They th and they thought New Hampshire was a lock. But then suddenly it looked like some of these New England states weren't going to hold, had decided they were going to sit it out. They were going to wait and see what happened nationally. And they weren't going to, they weren't going to vote on ratification. Vermont and Connecticut, their governors announced, we're not holding special sessions. We're not going to talk about ratification. We want to see what happens nationally, which was devastating for the national movement. 
Um, New Hampshire, they're starting to go the same way. But there's also articles in the paper about New Hampshire's important role in ratification in general, the idea of ratifying the Constitution. You guys all know, right, New Hampshire's, we're the ninth state. We were the ninth state to ratify the U.S. Constitution that put it into effect. Reporters are starting to talk about this. Editorials are starting to bring this up. We have a very significant role to play. Some people wanted us to wait and cast the critical ratifying vote. And other people are like, we can't do that. We got we to gotta go. We got to vote on this. Lois Shaw and three other suffragists um, show up at, at a meeting of the executive council and the governor. And they basically, nobody knows what happened, but they basically strong arm them into convening a special session on women's suffrage. Um, and so they convene this special session on September 9th. It passes without any problem in New Hampshire, it passes very quickly. Um, that's it passes on that same day or September 10th, I guess pass, passes in the House on September 9th. It goes to the Senate on September 10th. They pass it. So that's a big relief. Um, they, we were the 16th state to pass it. Um, as you know, we needed 36 to pass. Tennessee was the final state. They cast it. They voted, ratified it in their legislature by legislature by one vote. One vote, and apparently was cast by a guy that they didn't expect to vote for suffrage, but he'd gotten a letter from his mother that morning, and she basically said, you should really support this. So that's how narrowly it managed to pass. Remember I mentioned the New Hampshire state constitution and removing that word male? It came up again in 1921 before the state constitutional convention that year. It went to the voters. They voted it down. It didn't get taken out of the state constitution until 1956, okay? <laughs> Nobody enforced it, obviously, because women were voting um, they, after the 19th Amendment, but it took that long until the voters of New Hampshire finally said, we can take this out of the state constitution. Um, after, after all the states ratified, which is late August of 1920, there's this big rush because people want them to vote in the elections of November 1920, but they've got to get registered. And that is actually becomes a really complicated process. And my colleague in, in Keene, Jenna Carroll, she did a bunch of research on this for me that was really interesting. Um, it was one of the first time when women had to register to vote, they had a big problem on getting women to use their own names. They were used to being referred to as Mrs. John Smith. And they were not comfortable, many women were not comfortable registering as Jane Smith. They wanted to use their husband's names, which you couldn't do. Um, there were questions about poll taxes. New Hampshire had a poll tax in 1920. Well, how was that supposed to work? Did the poll tax, was it per family, per voter? Who was going to pay that? So the state actually came in and said, we're going to waive the poll tax for 1920 because we just want these women to be able to vote. Um, New Hampshire kept a poll tax until 1987. They renamed it because poll taxes were outlawed in 1965 through the Voting Rights Act. They renamed it something else and kept it until 1987. Um, they had Keene, where my friend Jenna was, was doing her research, they had hundreds of women show up um, and want to vote. The other thing that had to happen to be registered to vote is you had to pass, um, they did like an oral exam about, are you knowledgeable enough? Um, can you read? Are you educated enough to vote? I mean, this was true. They'd done this for a long time. So they had, but all of a sudden now they've got all these new women voters and they've got to process them through. So the Keene Sentinel ran a really funny article about these two women who had been school teachers for years and years and years. And the committee that examined them were full of their former students who were then examining their teachers to see if they could vote. And the other thing that is kind of shocking to people is that that time, um, if you were a woman and you married a foreigner, you lost your US citizenship. So you could not vote. So in a state like New Hampshire with all these French Canadians, um, there was this question then, well, wait a minute, now these women, now we have to recognize them in, in their own right, they should get their citizenship back even if their husbands are not yet citizens. So there were a lot of things to work out. Um, and then there was also a big effort to educate women. Um, New Hampshire started one of the first citizenship schools in the country. In fact, UNH is gonna be putting a plaque up to that um, in a, 
within the next couple of months. Um, they start, the League of Women Voters started these citizenship schools, and this woman, Mary I. Wood, was essential in that, um, and it became a model for across the country. Um, and it was kind of the idea of the League of Women Voters. They so they explained to women, you know, how the voting, how the government system worked, you know, the branches of government, traditional civics, but then they also in, um, got them informed on all sorts of issues. Um, what do you need to know about defense? Um, what do you need to know about, um, you know, labor laws? Um, all these different, so that women would be um, educated enough so that they could cast their votes. It was not part of UNH, but it was the UNH gave them the, the space to meet. Um, so, yeah, that was a lot of information there. And believe me, there was so much of the story I had to leave out. <laughs> um, but it is a great story. And I think it goes to show, first of all, that New Hampshire deserves more credit than it gets um, and actually played a bigger role. But also how you can always be tying in these national events to what's happening here in the state. Um, and how it's really New Hampshire is really a great um, a great way to introduce this to students and make it more manageable and reasonable. Um, you know, students love hearing about you know the kids in London area would probably love hearing that Rosecrans Pillsbury, who was so opposed to it, was from their town, or the kids in Lisbon are probably really interested to hear about ninety percent of the women in their town wanted the vote. Um, so it's a great way to sort of make those connections with students. Okay. Well, I will pass this stuff out. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.